for the reading of God's Word. Our text this morning is found in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, I should say. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Here's what it says. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, we are grateful for your word, as we've just sung. Your word, which is the light to our paths, our comfort in affliction, our shield and sword against Satan. Your word, which is a school of, of wisdom, testimony of your favor towards us, and it's the food and nourishment of our souls. So, Father, this morning as we open your word together, illuminate our minds. Help us to understand your word so that understanding it, we may believe it, we may obey it. Father, for your glory and for our joy, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Theology is not meant just for the mind. is important to understand. Doctrine, you think of the word doctrine, is not meant as an end in itself. In other words, we don't learn theology or learn doctrine just because we like it or just because that's what you're supposed to do. The, The point of studying theology is to know God. The point of studying theology, of studying doctrine, is so that we can worship God as he truly is, and so that we can live lives that please him. Every, everything that we study in scripture, from the most practical, basic truths, to the most complicated theological formulations, should impact how we live. One of the 8th century church fathers, Maximus the Confessor, put it this way. This is what he says. He says, theology without action or or theology without practice is the theology of demons. Okay, so put that, take your theological pipe, put that in there and smoke that for a while. That's a good one just to, to just mull over in your mind. Theology without practice, without action is the theology of demons. Right? You can kind of hear the echoes of from James's letter. 
Even the demons believe. They shudder. Christianity is, is not just an intellectual game for old white guys in tweed jackets. It's, it's, I do like tweed jackets, though. One of, the, one of the downsides of living in Southern California is there's hardly ever an occasion to wear a tweed jacket. It's too hot. Um, yeah, but that's a sermon for another time. Christianity is not just an existential balm for your brain that just makes you feel good and so you're not worried about going to hell when you die. Christianity, the Bible, is the revelation of the God of the universe to us, who He is, who He created us to be, and how we are to live our lives. Everything that we learn about Him impacts how we live our lives and how we treat one another. If our faith is real, it must show up in how we live in every area of our life. And so the study of the truths of Scripture is meant to, to drive us deeper into worship and propel us further into obedience to God's commands. Our, our doctrine, what we believe about God, is, is inseparable from how we live. And, and if we ever attempt to separate these things, we get ourselves into a whole mess of trouble. We will live what we believe, for better or for worse. Our lives will show the evidence of what we truly believe. And so, as Apostle Paul says, we must watch both our doctrine and our lives carefully. And I, I say that this morning as a way of introduction because this morning's text is, is a very practical text. It's a very earthy text. It's about loving one another. It's about working. And there's a, there's a, there's a temptation to think, well, then this isn't theological. This is just practical. But they are inseparable. And you'll see that this morning, I hope. But before we get into the details of, of this morning's text, I want to place 1 Thessalonians in its context. It's been a while since we've been in this letter together. If you're new here, uh, we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. I've been preaching through 1 Thessalonians every time I preach. Pastor Rudolph's been preaching through Matthew every time he preaches. And so it's been, it's been three months or so since we were last in 1 Thessalonians. So let's review. 1 Thessalonians is not a lecture in theoretical doctrine. It's, it's not a book written by some author. 1 Thessalonians is a wartime correspondence. It is instructions from, from a, a general to his troops who are under heavy fire by the enemy. The Apostle Paul, as you saw, as, as you heard, as we read Acts chapter 17, was no armchair theologian in some ivory tower. He was a pioneer church-planting missionary on the front lines of the gospel work. He literally bled repeatedly for the gospel and eventually gave his life in its service. So let's, as we read these words, let's, let's remember that this morning. Now, as again, as you heard in Acts chapter 17, that was the story of the founding of this church in Thessalonica. It was a pretty dramatic and tumultuous founding of a church. The, the church in Thessalonica is young still when Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. It's a brand new church plant of brand new Christians. Paul, Silas, and Timothy had come into Thessalonica, a city in Greece, They'd gone to the synagogue, they had preached the gospel, Jesus is the Messiah boldly, and from this people, from this preaching, 
Jews and Gentiles both came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Men, women, Jews, Greeks. And so Paul and his team began to form the church. They began meeting together. They began instructing them, teaching them what to believe about God, instructing them from the scriptures and how to live their lives in light of that. But they were interrupted in the middle of this process. They were chased out of Thessalonica by an angry mob. See, Paul says in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2.17, he says, we were torn away from you. In other words, Paul wasn't finished planting the church. He'd only been there, we don't know exactly how long, but it wasn't very long, maybe a month or two. Maybe not even that long, maybe a couple weeks. Paul had spent years in Ephesus planning the church, two or three years. But after a very short time together, brand new believers, this brand new church plant, Paul and his team had been ripped away from them. Paul's now stuck in Athens. It's been months since he's heard from the church in Thessalonica. They didn't have texting back then, okay? If you wanted to communicate, you had to send someone physically with a letter in your hand. This fledgling church, this new little church is smack dab in the middle of a city that Paul knows hates them and is persecuting them, taking their money even, we saw in Acts chapter 17. So Paul is is rightfully worried about his brothers and sisters. He communicates this in the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. He's, He's worried that they might have given up in the faith in the midst of all this persecution, hardship. He, he's worried that his labor there might have been in vain. And for some reason, he doesn't tell us. He just says, for some reason, he's, Satan hinders him from going back to Thessalonica. <coughs> Excuse me. And so he sends Timothy. He sends his, his, his right-hand man. Timothy travels to Thessalonica. And in chapter 3, verse 2, Paul tells us it's to establish, to, to firm up the church in Thessalonica and to exhort them in their faith. In other words, to tell them to keep going, to persevere. Timothy then returns to Paul. He comes back and gives him a report on how the church is doing, and it's good news, praise the Lord. Timothy tells Paul that they're enduring faithfully. They're growing. They're loving each other. There are some areas in which they need a word from Paul, but overall, it's it's good news. And so Paul writes this letter, the first letter to the Thessalonians, in response to that and sends it back to Thessalonica to encourage them, to exhort them, to instruct this faithful but brand new church of new believers in the middle of a hostile city. That's, that's where our, our passage this morning is situated. That's, that's the context in which it, which it is situated. And so now in chapter 4, Paul begins his instruction. He spends the first three chapters speaking of various things, speaking of their time together explaining some things, but in verse chapter 4, he really begins his instructions to the church. These were probably some areas in which Timothy said, hey, there's a couple, uh, two or three areas they need some instruction. So, so look what he says. Turn with me to, to look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 4. This really is the beginning of the section that we'll be dealing with. He says in, in chapter 4, verse 1, finally then, brothers, We ask and urge you, it's a language he's instructing them, in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. In other words, Paul says, in the situation you're in, there's, there's no time for complacency. 
There's, there's no time for stagnation. You, and he says, I don't really need to teach you anything. You know what you're to do. Keep doing it more and more and more and more. Continue to live in faithful obedience to God's word. Continue to grow in maturity and obedience. This is a great summary of the Christian life. We, we have God's instruction to us. We know what it is. Walk and please God more and more and more and more and more. Grow, learn more and more. This is God's will for your life and for mine. It was God's will for the church in Thessalonica. So so that's Paul's kind of main exhortation in this section. And then he gets into some specifics. He gets into three specific areas he wants them to focus on as they're growing and growing in obedience to the Lord. The first is sexual holiness. We, we dealt with this last, last time we were in 1 Thessalonians. That's in verses 3 through 8. So it's sexual holiness, brotherly love, and kind of their work ethic or their lives in relation to outsiders. So the second two exhortations are what we're going to look at this morning. And it breaks down really easy. Two main sections in our text this morning. The first is this. We are called to love each other increasingly. We are called to love each other increasingly. Look at, look at verse 9. Again, he's, he's listing off these various areas. Now, concerning brotherly love, or you might translate that family love, familial love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So the subject here in this, this exhortation is, is what's translated brotherly love or, or family love. You see, love is a central mark of a true Christian church, but not just any kind of love. Paul uses a very specific word here, a, a word that in the first century was really only used of blood family, and he's applying it to all the brothers and sisters in the church. The, the word is Philadelphia. We all know that word. It's, it literally is just word and bro- love and brother combined. It's, it's brotherly love. That's why Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love. I don't know how true that is. I've never been there. I've heard some things. It's the city of cheesesteaks and cream cheese in my mind. But anyway, uh, that's how the ESV translates it. But, but this is not, don't get confused. This is not just a, a male thing, brotherly love. It's, it's family love might be a better way to think about it. It's sibling love another way to, to think about it. It's, it's the closest, most intimate form of love. The kind of love that is reserved, again, in the first century mind for blood family. It's the most loyal of loves. Paul says the church is to be marked by this type of love, family love. Because the church is a family. It's not that the church is like a family or that we're like brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters. It's, the church is not just a, a nonprofit or a, a gathering of like-minded people or, or a religious event to attend. The church is a family. And, and once you begin to understand this and, and you put these lenses on, you start to see this everywhere in the New Testament. 
There's, there's family language used throughout the New Testament to describe the church. We just kind of glaze over it because we're so used to it. But in the first century, this was radical. Paul is constantly taking this language that was back then only used for blood family and applying it to the church. It's intentional. I mean, the words brothers and sisters are used everywhere. Again, we're used to it because we've, we've read the Bible. But Paul was a pioneer in this sense. It's the Romans, the first century Romans thought that the church was incestuous because they always call each other brother and sisters. They were confused by this. The church is called the household of God three times in the New Testament. God's family, God's household. It's called the household of faith. We are called, we're commanded in Scripture to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, we Westerners like to take that very metaphorically. I'm okay with that. I know there are certain people here who are, just want to go around kissing people, and you know what? More power to you. You might want to ask for consent first before you do it, though. But if you were in the Middle East and you went into the church, you're going to get kissed. If, you're a part, if, if you've had any experience in Mediterranean cultures or different cultures, this is a very much a Western thing. The point is, though, it's a family greeting. It's a family greeting. In, in 1 Thessalonians 2.17, and we, we, we quoted this earlier, when Paul says, we were torn away from you, that's a really good translation. Because uh, if you translate it literally, it doesn't really make sense in English. But literally, he uses this word that means we were made orphans. In other words, when Paul's saying when, when we were forced away from you, it's like we became orphans because we were separated from our family. In, in Paul's mind, to be separated from his brothers and sisters in Thessalonica was just to become an orphan, to be separated from his, his family. We're to call God our Father, family language. Jesus is the Son of God, family language. Our Father, Hebrews 12, tells us, disciplines us out of love. It's family. We're, how do we get into the family? We're born again into the family of God. We're adopted to the family of God. It's all family language. The gospel is saturated with family language. It, it, probably, probably part of the reason that we've, we've missed this sometimes is because we've over-individualize the gospel. The church is a family. To be part of this family is, is definitional. Is that a word? The Christian life. It, it's, it's so def, definitional. Now I'm second-guessing myself. It's, <laughs> it's so crucial to the Christian life that, that Jesus can say, Becoming a believer in Christ may cost you your family. Your family, your blood family may reject you if you follow me. But if you follow Christ, you get an even bigger and better family. He says this in Mark chapter 10. The disciples had said, Jesus, we've left everything for you. Look what Jesus says. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands for my sake, and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. See, when you, when you confess faith in Christ, you're brought into the family of God. 
When you're baptized into Christ, you're baptized into the church, his family. That is the truth, and that's what is going on in this text. That is how we are to love one another. That's the subject of what we're looking at here. Now, the state of the Thessalonian church is good. They're already doing this, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. This is, this is a, a three-month-old, maybe, church of, of brand-new believers. Paul says, you're already doing this. They already understand that loving each other as family is what they are supposed to do. They're, they're being persecuted, and yet they're sticking together. They're taking care of one another, so much so that Paul even says here, you don't really even need me to write to you about this. My prayer is that that would be true of us, that we would love each other like family, brothers and sisters in the faith, in the household of God, having been adopted by him into the same family. My prayer is that if the Apostle Paul were to look at our church this morning, he could say, concerning brotherly love, I don't even need to write anything to you. But if we want that to be true of us, if we want to grow in our love as we're called to do it, as we'll see, we've got to know the source of this love. We've got to know the source. How did the Thessalonians know to love each other like this? Well, Paul tells us in verse 9. You yourselves, very emphatic there, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. God is the source of their love. God is the one who has taught them to love each other. Paul didn't need to teach them to love one another. God already has. Now, you might be thinking, what in the world does that mean? How how did God teach them? And that's a great question. And the answer to it lies in the word that Paul uses for this. And from the best that we can tell, Paul invented a word here. He does that sometimes. He, he, he took the word for God, theos, and the word for taught, diktos, and just puts them together into one word. So you could say, you yourselves are God-taught to love one another. What is Paul doing here? He's making an allusion to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. In a beautiful section of Isaiah 54, in verse 13, God is listing out all of these covenant promises that are going to come in the new covenant, future things that he will do when Messiah comes. And in verse 13, this is what he says, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. So God is saying, look, in the new covenant, when when Messiah comes, their teacher is going to be the Lord himself. Paul's giving a a slight allusion here to say this is what's going on in the Thessalonian church. He's seeing the fruits of Messiah's ministry in the Thessalonian church. This was something that was going to be different in the new covenant. That the people of God, the, the family of God, we should say, will know him directly and have him as their teacher. Paul alludes to Isaiah here, but, but this idea is all over the prophets. We, we saw this even when we were looking at the Lord's Supper. Jeremiah says this, Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. 
from the leaders to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You see how this is fulfilled in the Thessalonian church by this, this beautiful word that Paul invents. Ezekiel tells us a, a very similar thing. Ezekiel reveals the, the, the means by which God will do this. Ezekiel 36, 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my rules. I don't have this one on the screen. In Romans chapter 5, Paul even combines these things. He says that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is seeing in this church. This, this, This family love, this obedience to God's word that Paul is seeing is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the evidence that God's promises are being fulfilled in this church. It's the evidence that God is at work in this church. That's not usually how we judge today if a church, if God is at work in a church, is it? We think, oh, that church is growing. God must be at work. Oh, their baptism numbers are up. God must be at work. And that may be true. That may be true. That's not how Paul looks for evidence of the Holy Spirit's work. Paul, Paul in this text says, they are loving each other like brothers and sisters. God is at work in them. Thessalonians are, are loving one another with a family love. And not only that, Paul says, not just their little local body that they're loving. Paul says they're loving the whole region of Macedonia. They're loving all the brothers and sisters in all of Macedonia, which is kind of like maybe for us uh, Southern California or something like that, or, or even just San Diego County. Their, their love is so powerful that it's overflowing from their church to others. We strive to do that here. That's why you'll often hear us praying for other churches. We're not in competition with them. We want their ministry to succeed just like ours. We're we're always looking for ways that we can bless and encourage the ministry of other faithful gospel-preaching churches here in our city and beyond to the whole world. The Thessalonians were succeeding at this. But although Paul said he had nothing to write, he still wants to encourage them. And so he says in verse 10, but we urge you, and here's the command, Brothers, do this more and more. So we see that again, more and more. Paul says, you are loving each other like family, but don't be satisfied. Do it more, more love, more love, more affection, more care for each other. Provide for each other more. No complacency, no stagnation. You're loving, that's good. Love more. There's there's always more people to love. There's always new ways to love them. There's always different ways we can provide for one another. Now, what does this look like? When the Bible says love, does it mean Hallmark Christmas movie kind of love? No. God forbid. Okay. I know that's some of your things. Is this like, when we think love, is this mainly an emotional feeling? Like, oh, I love you. No, it's, it's not that. It's not that. Although this love does entail emotions, it's not driven by emotions. It mainly involves action. It involves taking care of each other. It means that we're, we're providing for one another. We're taking care of each other. We're watching out for one another. 
It means that when, when someone in the church has a financial need, others come through to provide for it. That, that's why we have the deacon's fund. It means meeting each other's needs, but, but also being willing to let your needs be known so that your brothers and sisters can care for you. It takes humility. So it, it has a financial aspect. Any good family does. It, it means sharing our skills with one another, helping each other. Now, this takes place in the actual church service, doing sound, playing music, serving on the greeting team, different ways like this, but also just in everyday life tasks. What skills do you have that you could use to love your brothers and sisters? Can you fix cars? Maybe someone has a, a, a car problem that they don't know how to fix and they don't have the money to fix. You could serve them. Do you know finances? There are probably plenty of people who need help with their finances. You could serve them. I mean, the possibilities are endless. It's very practical. This is family stuff. It means giving rides to those without cars. It means being hospitable to each other, having each other in our homes. It means watching over each other spiritually, exhorting each other, grow in Christ, encouraging one another, helping each other grow, reading the Bible together, guarding each other from sin, holding one another accountable. It means praying together. Praying for each other on our own individually, but also gathering together to pray. These are all ways that we can love each other as brothers and sisters. It means suffering together. The Thessalonian church really understood this one. It means suffering together, going through hardship together, grieving with each other in hardship, sitting in the hospital with each other, sitting by the graveside together, weeping together. Mourning together it means rejoicing together, celebrating new babies together, celebrating new marriages, new life, new members, the joys of life together. It means being slow to be offended and quick to forgive, being gracious with one another, being patient with one another. These are all definitional to family love. It means putting up with each other's weirdness and quirky differences, right? Lord knows we have plenty of that here. I'm a testimony. It means seeking to live out Philippians 2, 1 through 5, which we said, seeking to live that out with each other, putting other, others' preferences above our own, putting others' needs above our own, striving for unity. It means seeking to live out 1 Corinthians 13 with each other, Dustin so wisely pointed out the other week that that's, we use that for marriage, but that's not a text about marriage. It's about body life. It's about life in the church together. Love is patient. Love is kind. Gentle. Not holding grudges. Not harboring resentment against those in the body. This is the kind of family love that should mark our church. God is calling us to live like this. He's calling you and I to live like this, to, to love like this. Our Father is telling His children, us, to love each other like brothers and sisters. And, and when we're tempted to think that just sounds so hard, 
It sounds impossible. You don't know this person. You don't know this person. You need to remember that, that the, the source of this love, the motivation for this love, it's not us. It's God himself. God did not love us because we were lovable. God did not display his love for us in Christ Jesus when we were at our most lovely, but when we were enemies of his, we were wicked. When you're struggling to love those in the body, think of God's love for you. Think of God's patience towards you. Think of God's kindness to you to lead you to repentance. Think of God's grace towards you in Christ Jesus. Think of God's love displayed for you on the cross of Christ. Let that fuel this love for one another. Think of how undeserving you are of all those things that God has lavished upon you. And then out of that, lavish it upon your brothers and sisters. We have the same Holy Spirit dwelling in us that the Thessalonians did. And the Holy Spirit working in us individually and corporately will do this. We are faithful in prayer. We are faithful in obedience. So ask yourself this morning. Think about this this week. It's a very practical question. How could I better love the brothers and sisters of Del Cerro Baptist Church? How could I better serve and care for my brothers and sisters? Just think of some simple things you could do. Maybe it's a note you could send. Maybe it's a encouraging conversation you could have. Maybe there's someone struggling in sin that you've been not wanting to confront, but you need to confront them. Maybe you've been harboring resentment and you need to ask for forgiveness. Maybe you've lacked patience you need to ask for forgiveness. Think about that this week. How can I better love and serve my brothers and sisters of Del Cerro? I believe as a church that, that we do this. We do this. We do this well, but let's not become complacent. Amen? Let's, let's continually seek to grow, and as Paul says, do this more and more and more and more. Become more and more and more loving. We are called to love each other increasingly, increasingly. And secondly, we are called to live respectfully. We are called to live respectfully. I don't like that summary of this, but it's the only way I could think of to summarize all this. I think it will become more clear as we go along. So Paul concludes this, this kind of instruction section, this urging section, with the second half of verse 10. Look at verse 10. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. Okay? We just saw that. And here's his kind of three ending things. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So, so here Paul is urging the Thessalonians, to three things, and he finishes with a reason. Now, as you'll see, these, these three things are all related, and they are related to this command to love as well. But let's walk through each one. So Paul urges these Thessalonians to aspire to live quietly. And that's kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? Paul says to aspire to live quietly. In other words, you could say to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. That's how some translations translate it. Make it your aim. This should be your goal, to live quietly. It's almost an oxymoron. The King James, I like this, says, study to be quiet. Now, we understand goals. Okay, we get ambition. Okay, it's something we want to set our minds. It's something we want to accomplish. That's straightforward. What does it mean to live quietly? 
It's a strange phrase. Because if it's about volume, I'm in trouble. And I, I can feel all the parents with young kids in the room thinking, yeah, a, a quiet life would be nice. But this text is unfortunately not about that. It's not about volume. No, to live quietly is, is about living peacefully. It's, it's almost easier to define it as what it's not, right? It's kind of what the church fathers call the way of negation. So to live quietly is the opposite of living dramatically, the, the drama queen kind of lifestyle. It's, it's the opposite of someone who's gossiping all, continually. It's the, it is the person who knows how to control their tongue, who knows when to speak and when not to speak. person who's living quietly is not looking to stir up trouble, not always causing problems. Again, it's kind of hard to describe. It's almost more of a feeling. One way that I was thinking about it this week is, have you ever, you have those friends that when you spend time with them, you just leave feeling restored and refreshed, and you just think, oh, this is good to see them. Those are usually people who are living quietly. They're living restfully. And so when you interact with them, you just feel encouraged restored. This is an aspect of what it means. They're not always stirring up trouble, stirring up drama, stirring up gossip, living quietly. Paul says again, they're, they're, they're minding their own business. They're taking care of their own stuff. Paul says that should be our ambition. It should be our aim. And that's obviously easier for some than others, but that should be the way that we seek to live quietly restfully, not causing problems for people. Paul says, to mind your own affairs. And again, this is very related. Paul wants the Thessalonians to mind their own business. It's pretty straightforward. You can see the relation to this previous command. I want to remind you this morning, as I need to constantly remind myself as well, gossip is a sin in the Bible. Sometimes it's one of those ones that we just excuse as like, well, it's just what people do, or it's just what this, these type of people do. It's a sin. In Romans 1, Paul lists gossip as a major sin right alongside, right alongside envy, murder, deception, pride, and hatred of God. It's a serious sin. And it seems to have been a problem in the Thessalonian church because in 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes this in chapter 3. We hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, there's that same word, quietly, and to earn their own living. So Paul's solution here, mind your own affairs, mind your own business, get a job, take responsibility for your life. Very practical. Paul says, don't be caught up in other people's affairs, mind your own affairs. Take responsibility for yourself. Don't gossip. And thirdly, he says, to work with your hands as we instructed you. You see, these are all related. If the Thessalonians will work hard with their hands, as Paul says here, they will labor for their living. It will help them to not walk in idleness and therefore to mind their own affairs and to live quietly. Brothers and sisters, work is good for us. Hard work is good for us. In fact, think of it this way. 
We were created as humans to work. The goal of life is not to escape work. God gave Adam and Eve the command to work and keep the garden before Adam fell into sin. Work is not a result of the fall. It's part of the original mandate of who we are as humans. The original purpose of humankind was to glorify God in their work. Now, the the pains and the strife and the struggle that come with work are a part of the fall, and one day we'll be free from those, but we're never going to cease working. That's how we glorify God. The implications of this are huge. It means that when we are lazy, or, or as Paul says, the word he uses, when we're idle, when we're not working, and this is different from resting. He's not talking about we need rest. Of course we need rest. Idleness is different than resting. Idleness is not working when we should be working. When we're idle, when we're lazy, we open ourselves up to all sorts of sins. Laziness or refusal to work is itself a sin, and it's a sin that opens us up to all sorts of other sins. It's a sin that I struggle with. It's a sin that many of you struggle with. So let's call it what it is. It's sin. It's dangerous. It's dangerous for your soul. Let's fight against it together. Idleness, laziness is a sin that opens us up to many others. Just sitting around at the house all day, you're going to get into all sorts of trouble. Even King David himself got himself into trouble because he should have been at war. And what was he doing? He was just sitting at home. Some of the Thessalonians we saw when we looked at 2 Thessalonians 3 were idle. That led to gossip, led to irresponsibility, led to them failing to love each other because they weren't working. Not that, let's let that not be said of us. Let's work. Work with our hands. Work with our minds. Work for the glory of God. And you see, this, this command to work with your hands is encouraging because it means that even the most tedious, boring, simple tasks and jobs can be performed to the glory of God. Every vocation, every career, every job that's not sinful is, calling, is a calling from God that you can glorify him in. Just as much as a, as a pastor can glorify God in what he's doing. You don't need to be a pastor or a missionary to truly serve God. That's a lie. You, if you are a Christian, a Christ follower, the work that you do is a holy calling. The work that you do is sacred. From flipping burgers to selling clothes to serving the military, delivering the mail, whatever it is, all of it can be done for the glory of God. All of it can be offered up to God as a sacrifice of praise. But why does this matter? Well, look at the end of verse 12. There's a reason for it. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Our witness to the watching world is dependent upon our ability to live honorable and respectful lives, to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, to work hard. As Christians, we are to be a loving family that goes out into the world as productive members of society, continually pointing people back to Jesus Christ. And also, so that's the first reason. Second is that we will not be dependent on anyone. So here's where it connects with, with the command to love each other. If you're not working, you're not earning money. If you're not earning money, how can you take care of your brothers and sisters in need? Now, obviously, this is not talking about people who are unable to work. This is talking about people who are 
able to work and are refusing for whatever reason. If you're not earning money, you can't provide for your brothers and sisters. And in fact, you're relying and burdening others with your laziness. A lack of, of work, a lack of work ethic is a lack of love for your brothers and sisters. Have you ever thought about it like that? I mean, think about it this way. I was just thinking about this this morning, kind of struck by it. Think of how this applies to, to the, the church and what we do on a Sunday morning. Think about how this applies to giving. If you don't work, you can't give to the church ministry. And yet, you still come expecting everyone else to give to the church ministry so that the air is on and the lights are on and the pastors are here and everything's working, right? By refusing to give to the ministry of the church, either, either because you're not working so you're not earning money or you're just not giving out of the hardness of your heart, you're burdening everyone else with the bill. You're, you're mooching off your brothers and sisters to provide the ministry for you to consume. You're essentially asking them to pay for you to come to church. It's awful. And I'm saying this to myself as much as you. I need to constantly remind myself of this. I must confess, I have not always been faithful in my giving to the church, but that is a sin that I had to repent of. You need to think about this. When you, when you think of, of giving, giving is not something that we just do optionally. Uh, if we feel like giving is something that we're commanded to do by Scripture as a way to provide for our brothers and sisters the ministry of this church. I had to repent of my lack of giving and of my lack of love for the body. It's one of the most tangible ways we can love one another. I, I, was, I, this is, I love this. I was talking with one of our younger members recently who had just gotten his first job, I think. This is what he told me. He was so excited that he got a job because now he could give to the church. That's, brothers and sisters, that, that is the attitude that we should have. That we have the opportunity, the privilege to give our money in service of the Lord. Amen? It, it, it is an obligation. It is a duty. But it is a great opportunity and a privilege. That is part of what it means to love. Why we work so we can love. Now, this, this call to love and to work is a high calling. It can seem daunting. Loving people is not easy. Working is not easy. But remember this, our motivation, all of it, all of it, is grounded in the cross of Christ. We, we do not do these things. We do not seek to obey these commands so that we might be made right with God but because we've been made right through God, with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Because God's love for us was displayed on the cross, the sacrifice of his son for sinners like you and me, because he accomplished our salvation, because we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, because he's adopted us into our family, now we are equipped to love, to serve, to work for his glory. See, in Christ, God has forgiven us already of our sins of lovelessness, of bitterness, of laziness, of gracelessness, all our failures, all our rebellion. He's already forgiven us for that. That is what motivates us to love and work for each other 
increasingly and sacrificially. It's God's love for us that frees us to love one another and to work to glorify him. So church, let's, let's put our theology into practice. Let's let our doctrine of God's love displayed in the cross of Christ Jesus fuel our love for one another. Let's love each other increasingly. Let's live and work respectfully by the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience to Jesus Christ and for the glory of God the Father. Together as a family, let's put our faith to work. Let's show each other what we believe by our love for one another. It's our calling. It's our duty. It's our privilege.